It's Monday, January 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The government shutdown is over for now, but it is still unclear what the final outcome will be. President Trump walked away with nothing in terms of his border wall, and now there's a three-week time limit on whether it will happen again. Also developing over the weekend, Roger Stone gets indicted in the Mueller probe. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for a breakdown of all the big political news. Next, a quick update on the story of 13-year-old Jamie Kloss, who was held captive for 88 days by Jake Patterson. A lot was made of who would be getting the reward money that was offered for anyone that had information that led to her rescue. Well, since she saved herself when she escaped, she will be getting $25,000 of that reward money. My producer Miranda joins us for more. Finally, there is a whole community of content creators on YouTube that are blind. While YouTube doesn't seem like a natural fit for someone who is visually impaired, these creators have become voices for an often overlooked group of people who use the internet just as much as many others do. Emma Gray Ellis, writer at Wired, joins us to discuss the blind YouTubers making the internet more accessible. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think the president wants his $5.7 billion. It's, keep in mind, why, why, why is that number? It's not a number that's made up. Um, it's what the experts have told him. He's listened to DHS. I've been in on the meetings. He's listened to CBP. He's listened to ICE. We have identified the top 17 highest priorities in terms of where we can put up barrier to discourage people from crossing the border illegally. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The government shutdown is now over for about three weeks, and we'll see what happens after that. President Trump signed a temporary deal to end the longest shutdown on record. Federal agencies are going back to work. Let's start there. How long is it going to take for all of them to get all their back pay? Well, we are told by congressional sources as the government was being reopened that they hope to have it back paid by this week, that they were going to move as quickly as they possibly can. I'll tell you, it's created some angst among the the public workers who I spoke with, some concern about timing, some concern about their taxes. Imagine if you got a whole month's pay at once. Some concern about whether or not it gets treated like your normal pay. There's a lot of questions they have to iron out, and they're working from what I understand to do that as quickly as they can. As far as actually going back to work, some people say that because of the backlogs, deadlines that were missed, just how slow the federal government actually works, that it could take weeks, maybe months to really get back on track, which makes this three week time limit even more precarious. It's hard to like know what's going to happen there. But imagine anybody and they say, don't call this a vacation because it really wasn't for these workers. They were stressed out the whole time. But imagine taking time off from work. And then you come back and it's always that first couple of days to get back in the rhythm. I mean, they have so much stuff that they need to get caught up on. It's going to be really hard for them. I know uh, you mentioned the IRS. They have a backlog. They don't have all the workers that they are going to need for the upcoming tax season. The uh, Food and Drug Administration, they have to start taking new drug and medical device applications again. It's like everything is backed up right now. Everything is delayed. I mean, I think all of us could imagine if we just stopped doing our job for a month and no one filled in for us how much backlog we would have after we came back. And so it's not like the work stops piling up. They have to deal with the old work and the new work. And there's just a lot of logistical issues there. I know it says, you know, don't think of it like a vacation. I did talk to a, a Department of Justice attorney who told me when the shutdown started that they were taking home two briefcases with the work to do. Um, so they were probably some of them were 
working when they weren't supposed to be. Right. Um, but I, I, you know, it's still really hard. And, you know, the IRS said it could take them a year or more to catch up to recover fully. The economic impact could take years to be recovered. This is not something to be done lightly. And when we talk about the economic impact, if you were waiting on a loan approval or you were waiting on some type of regulatory approval in order to move forward with something that you weren't able to get, the prospect that you won't be able to get it again in three weeks is one such that people are scurrying and putting a lot of pressure and trying to get things done that they think is a priority that might not be a priority in the, at large. So the mess is not solved yet is, is what I would take away from this. Let's talk about the deal to uh, reopen the government that the president announced on Friday. Uh, it's a, just a temporary thing. It's for three weeks. So the both sides can uh, negotiate money for the border wall, for the fence there. The president walked away with nothing. He spent a whole month saying, we're going to stick to this. We need funding for national security, border security. And at the end, the air traffic controllers got to him. Uh, It just became too much. He had to back down. Everybody's saying Nancy Pelosi won this battle. The president's base is very angry with him. They say that he caved. Uh, I mean, I heard cave tossed around so many times over the weekend. Tell us what's the spin and what actually happened. I mean, to be clear, the president got nothing that he asked for. This was identical almost entirely to the deal that he killed in the days before the government shut down in December, having a conference committee to discuss border security, of which Democrats continue to say won't be a wall, but will be security. And we saw the president's language on that changing. This is a far cry from the demands or the the insistence he made he would make on those demands. I think that What we saw was something that probably he should have realized in the beginning, which is you can't make big policy changes in this way. Now, you can in a negotiated, bicameral, bipartisan, multi-branch way, which is what they're going to try to do now, that it is possible to reach compromise and deals in that way, but not necessarily probable, and, and it's still going to be really difficult. These are not the kind of things one can just wave wave a magic wand and make appear. Jared Kushner's name gets thrown around a lot. He's always behind the scenes making these deals. And this is one of those things that he could not do that he came off of this big win with criminal justice reform. And so he just couldn't get the deal done. He didn't have any sway with Democrats in this one. That's right. We know that Jared was trying to get something done It's always difficult to be the guy in the middle willing to take something from both sides because you can quickly find that you're making no one happy and that no one likes you, especially if you go into it thinking you can make everyone happy and everyone will like you. I think that Jared has encountered this a couple of times already. We are seeing it again with his attempt to broker this deal. Frankly, lawmakers will tell you and those of us who watch Washington that the best bet to get a deal done is to have lawmakers do what they do and make laws and hammer it out themselves. That is about their best bet, and they're going to try to do it this time. So now we're set up for an anxious three weeks, really. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody really coming to consensus again. Uh, The president is still threatened, declaring a national emergency. So these next three weeks are going to be interesting to see how things develop. The other big thing that happened on Friday was the arrest and indictment of Roger Stone, the president's longtime 
political advisor for, I mean, for a long time. He got caught up for obstruction of justice, witness tampering, making false statements. What do we know about Roger Stone's indictment? Roger Stone was a confidant and advisor to the president for a long time. He worked for the president's initial campaign until he was fired in the early days before any voting started. Although we do know that he was in contact with the campaign and with the president after that, he's been indicted for his statements surrounding his interaction with WikiLeaks, with what is believed to be Russian agents trying to influence the outcome of the election. I mean, using the term Russian agents, that to mean people who are Russian, but people who are acting on behalf of Russian interests. This is one of the most damaging indictments that we've seen come out so far. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie on Sunday morning on television called it damning and irrefutable, saying that it was really just a real detailing of the actions of Roger Stone. Stone, on the other hand, after being arrested, insisted that he would not ever testify against the president, tried to mimic the image of Nixon holding up peace signs. (laughs) He's a character that Roger Stone, that's for sure. And so where does this put us now with the progress of the Mueller probe? This indictment renewed talks about when the Mueller investigation is concluded. There have some who have said, well, you know, now he's got to go through the whole prosecutorial process and try Roger Stone before he can conclude and issue a report with all of his findings. There are others that say, no, he could issue that report, which should, in theory, detail what he has decided to charge and what he has decided not to charge. This is really more speculation. We don't know. And and uh, uh, Mueller isn't telling us. So we're kind of have to wait and see. But it did spur more speculation that he could be close to wrapping this up and giving a full accounting of his of his decision making. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So after 88 days, she had the courage after him telling her every single day, you saw me shoot your mother in the face right in front of you. Do not try to escape. She gave him the name of the guy, what he looked like. She escaped from her perpetrator and she helped catch the perp that kidnapped her. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. Wanted to give a quick update on the Jamie Claus story. She's the 13 year old girl who disappeared in Wisconsin last October She escaped her captor on January 10th after being held captive for 88 days. Her captor, Jake Patterson, has been charged with intentional homicide of her two parents, kidnapping, armed burglary, and abduction. We have some good news on Jamie Claus' side, but with regard to Jake Patterson, Miranda, what do we know? What's the latest about... uh, his court proceedings. Well, we found out that the prosecutor in Wisconsin announced that they have no plans to file additional charges against Jake Patterson in connection with the 88 days that Jamie spent held in his house. So apparently that's like the, an imprisonment charge. He's not going to get that. And they're saying that it's because they're very confident they have enough evidence to convict and hold this guy and have a life sentence in Barron County where He's charged for, like you said, kidnapping Jamie and then murdering her two parents. Yeah, it's interesting. It means that it's unlikely that we'll get details of what happened while she was being held in captivity. We know that he kept her under the bed. He put buckets and uh, containers around the bed to kind of keep her under there when people would come over or he would leave. But that's really all we know. We don't know what was going on day to day while he was interacting with her. So 
just because the charges are going to stay and we might not find out anything else. He's back in court on February 6th for the next round of that. But onto the good news, there was this whole thing made of the $50,000 in reward money. I saw a few memes immediately after Jamie Claus came back and they were like, she saved herself. She should get all of the reward money. Yeah. And that's kind of what's going to happen almost. The $50,000 reward sum is made up of two sources. One was from the Genio turkey plant where her parents both worked together for many years. And the other 25000 was put up by the FBI. So we know for sure that Genio Hormel is the parent company. They're going to give her the $25,000. Her parents worked there for 27 years. Yeah. He said it's a really small place and they're very close. It's like a little family. What we don't know is what's going to happen with the $25,000 put up by the FBI. According to a guy, Leonard Peace, he's the public information officer for the agency in Wisconsin. He's not commenting and they say it's just because of privacy considerations. They don't really want to advertise that she's going to have a ton of money. But a GoFundMe was also set up by the family around the time of her disappearance. It's been verified by GoFundMe and that is over $35,000 at this point. That's, I mean, that's awesome. She's going to need all the support she can get in the years to come. You know, this is not something that goes away just because she's rescued now. She's going to be facing a whole lifetime of, you know, just really going through this stuff. As far as Hormel and Genio Turkey Store, they want to also set up some type of trust fund for her so she can have stuff later in the future. Uh, as far as the FBI goes, I mean, if they give it to Jamie, that's super awesome. But maybe they could divide it between the two neighbors that helped her right as soon as she escaped. They put themselves nice. at risk. They did. Yeah. Good news, at least for that. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. And so it's an interesting way in which something that people think would be not inclusive or exclusionary is actually something that, that opened these people's worlds in ways that certainly didn't expect when I started this project. Joining us now is Emma Gray Ellis, writer at Wired. We saw your article about blind YouTubers and it just looks so interesting. And I started reading it and I started checking out some of these YouTube pages of blind content creators with their YouTube channels. I kind of went down the hole. I started following a bunch of people and, and getting very interested in their channels. I want to start off with a portion of your article where you spoke to someone named Casey Greer. She has a YouTube channel called How Casey Sees It. And it says to be blind on the internet at its worst is to be told you're a liar. She said every time she says she's visually impaired, people will say, well, then how did you type this comment? How do you possibly interact on YouTube? How do you do anything on here? And she always has to explain to people that blind people use the internet just as much as sighted people. And we just start there. Well, what do we know about these blind YouTube content creators? So I went down, I think, probably the same rabbit hole that you did. It's a really fascinating community. And if you are a sighted person, it's not necessarily a world that you'd be necessarily aware of, which I think is where that comment that Casey made right. is really coming from. The, it's, there's a sort of broad ignorance among the sort of sighted community about the ways in which blind people use technology to really expand their world in a way that was not possible at all before the smartphone. And so these creators on YouTube are really, I think when you speak to most of them, they think of their channel as serving sort of two functions. The first and probably most important is to be a kind of rallying place for the VI or visually impaired community because these are people who are otherized 
when they're out on the internet or like you said, they're told that they're liars. And then their secondary purpose is to serve as educators for people who can see, who just don't necessarily have a window into this world at all. And that's where I went down the rabbit hole. It, it was very fascinating to see how normal they operate. The spectrum of blindness varies. You know, not everybody just sees pitch black. People can see maybe vague shapes and figures or just light sources. And a lot of times people would use cameras to really magnify something so they can see it up close and in greater detail. That's the difficulty with things like YouTube and Instagram even. These are such visual mediums that people that are sighted don't get it a lot of times. I believe the statistic is something like 90% of visually impaired people have some kind of remaining vision. I think often it's light sensitivity. But in the case of Casey and the other person who uses cameras as kind of magnifying classes is uh, illegally blind filmmaker named James Raff, who also has a YouTube channel. And they were using cameras since at a really young age. Casey told me a story about going to the zoo and bringing a camera with her not to take pictures, but to zoom in as far as she could so she could see the animals. And so it's an interesting way in which something that people think would be not inclusive or exclusionary is actually something that, that opened these people's worlds in ways that certainly didn't expect when I started this project. YouTube has expanded its accessibility for obviously for creators, but also for consumers as well. So blind users could are able to access a little bit better. So they do different things like screen readers and, and uh, other things that are available to them so they can be on the platform a little more naturally. As far as I know, the sort of first fully blind YouTuber was a guy named Tommy Edison who does film reviews. And he said that when he first got on the platform that he couldn't navigate it even a little bit. And since then, they've added keyboard sh shortcuts and screen readers, but screen readers are like a separate software. But what the web developers have to do is fill in fields so something is being read aloud were the screen reader to sort of mouse over that area. And so they've really improved people's ability to use the platform, which if you come at it from a perspective that isn't necessarily cited, is as much audio as it is visual. One of my favorite ones was the blind film critic talking mm -hmm. about how, you know, he's listening to movies, experiencing the movies. And it's like, you know what? I just didn't connect with it because I'm lost in the shuffle of all this nonsense audio. And I always, this stuck, sticks in my head. I was watching something about about a, a blind lady talking about her favorite show and it was everybody loves Raymond and they asked the question mm -hmm. well how can you enjoy it you can't see it you know she saw a few seasons before she went blind so she remembers what the characters look like so just hearing them and how they yell and and laugh and mm -hmm. all that stuff and operate she can remember it so it's almost as if she is watching it it's the same thing for I, uh, I would assume for the blind film critic you know watching these movies he's just going to tell you my experience and how well I can follow the story with sound one of the features that some of these creators are advocating that YouTube add or at least make a little bit easier to do is something called audio description. And they already have this for a number of movies and, and other platforms is when you have a voice actor supply additional narration for people who aren't sighted. And so if you had a scene that was the camera panning over a mountain range, then there'd be someone in this audio description telling people what those mountains look like. Things like that are really, really helpful in, you know, these people are already having a pretty full experience with audio and it's possible to make it better for them. And on YouTube, all that would really take is adding the ability to upload an additional audio track that you can toggle on and off in the same way that you toggle captions on and off. Emma Gray mm -hmm. Ellis, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.